So verse 1 of chapter 4, which I read in the first half of the service, is this. While the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Rest sounds nice. Fear sounds not so nice. Two things. God promises rest. That's right up there. The promise of entering God's rest stands. Uh, The other thing is that to miss out on God's rest wouldn't just be disappointing, but it would be frightening. Let's say you rock up at work tomorrow, Monday Monday morning, only to discover there's no one else there. Uh, Everyone from your workplace has all been taken on an all-expenses five-day trip to Magnetic Island. Sound nice? Your families are invited too, and you were invited as well, uh, but you didn't get the memo somehow. The charter plane your company organised to take everyone straight up to Townsville, it's already gone. You and your family, as I say, you were naturally invited, but you either never read the email or you somehow were never around when everyone else was talking about it, and you'd completely miss out on a golden opportunity. And even that, like uh, frightening isn't the first word that would spring to mind, but if, you're, if you've got a shred of self-consciousness in you like I do, then I, I'd be squirming with something like fear. How do you face your wife saying, uh, we were invited to this thing and now I have to twiddle my thumbs for this week uh, when everyone else is, uh, is out at, at the island for free? How do you talk to your colleagues when they all get back raving about what a great time they had and asked you why you weren't there? If God promises rest and you don't pay attention or you don't take him up on it or you somehow disqualify yourself before you get there, then that's pretty upsetting stuff. Uh, And before we even talk about what is even meant by rest, uh, this word that's repeated ten times in chapter 4, Just think about who it is that's invited you. It's not just about what you've been invited to, although we'll talk a bit about that, but it's the inviter, the one who asks. It's God. If God invites you even just down the road, you take him up on that offer. You're mad not to. Uh, I remember when I was a uni student uh, and a bunch of us were on our way to a function, uh, a bunch of friends, uh, and the first wave of guys who got there, naturally I wasn't in the first wave, but the first wave of guys who got there uh, arrived at the venue just as John Howard, who was the Prime Minister at the time, was coming out of the venue. Uh, And all my mates got photos shaking his hand. And some of my mates were not particularly John Howard fans. In fact, some of them were pretty harsh critics of the man. But in all of their photos, every one of my friends was starstruck and beaming. If you get the chance to shake the Prime Minister's hand, most people eagerly take that chance. Just because of the title, even if you don't love the bloke. If you get invited to anything with God, it could be rest could even be hard labour, for crying out loud. You take that invitation. And you feel like an idiot if you don't, or worse. God promises rest, but to miss out on that rest wouldn't just be disappointing, it'd be frightening, wouldn't it? Uh, What is God's rest? 
Well, as you read chapter 4 of this letter to the Hebrews, which is really, uh, as I've said, a seamless flow on from chapter 3. So I'm not actually going to do all of this flow on in sharp detail because I I feel like it's been picked up pretty well already last week. uh, And you can listen to that online. Um, As you read chapter 4, it's a seamless flow on from the same thought in chapter 3. Uh, and it's apparent that the author gets this idea and language of rest by grouping together a few different ideas from the Old Testament. So the book of Hebrews is written in the first century AD. This is after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's written to a bunch of people of uh, Hebrew or Jewish background uh, who have turned to Christ as their Messiah and Saviour. Uh, And these people are all very well versed and familiar with the Old Testament, the stuff that was written, uh, the historical stuff and the prophets written before the time of Jesus. The the Old Testament is their holy book still. Um, And and this idea of rest in Hebrews uh, uh, groups together a few different ideas in the Old Testament. So the first one, the main one that pervades most of chapters 3 and 4... Uh, is rest is how God sometimes spoke of the promised land. So in Exodus, this is the second book of the Bible, the Hebrew people or the Jewish people or the Israelite people as they came to be called, uh, the Hebrew people, they were promised by God a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Crucially, uh, this land flowing with milk and honey was a promise that was before them And the context is that behind them, they're leaving harsh slavery in Egypt. So no wonder it's called rest, because slavery brings up not just images, but the reality of hard labour, slogging it out in the hot sun with whips on your back. Almost anything is going to be rest in comparison. Imagine a land flowing with just the riches of God's creation. It would be a welcome and just reprieve from generations of backbreaking labour to enter that promised land, which was sometimes in the Old Testament referred to as the rest that was awaiting them. Unfortunately, even though they had uh, the very vivid memory and still the scars on their back from labour under slavery in Egypt, that whole first generation that were promised rest in the promised land never entered it. They grumbled on the way, they strayed from God and so God, in judgment, kept them moving in circles in the wilderness until every one of them died out. Even Moses, their great rescuer, died in the desert, only ever seeing the rest in the distance. Uh, Joshua was Moses' successor and he did lead the next generation into this promised rest. And yet hundreds of years later, having, having made it and having lived there and made it their own and continued still at times to fight off enemies and to stray, etc. Uh, even after having entered it, uh, uh, hundreds of years later, King David wrote a song. And that song is in our Bibles as Psalm 95. Uh, and it's the song that keeps getting quoted in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Depending how your Bible is, is formatted, you can sort of see there's a series of quotes and most of them are repeated and they're all from the same psalm, Psalm 95, a song written by David. Two people already living in this land of rest. And crucially, uh, crucially, remember these people are already living in this promised land of rest. And David in the song says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
because, as you read on, those who did harden their hearts back then, well, they never entered God's rest. Well, why would we need to not harden our hearts again today if the rest has already been entered? Well, it's as if to say, David's saying, uh, uh, your ancestors with soft hearts entered the rest, uh, entered this version of rest where you now live, but the promise of rest still stands before you as it did to them. You could still disqualify yourself, even though you're already here, you could still disqualify yourself from entering God's rest. The instruction to hear God's voice is still before you today in here, the land of rest, uh, as, uh, as it was to them out there when they were in the wilderness. Uh, David is saying this resting place in Israel isn't the real thing. Its rest hasn't already been accomplished. It's just a foretaste of the true rest. And frankly, to the people first reading this book then of Hebrews, who are, who are reading the author, who we don't know who he is, but the author is sort of pulling out these themes of rest, and they're reading this, um, and, and this would have been a little shocking, because they were in love with the land. It's tied up with their identity, deeply. But it's also a kind of a relief, because another thousand years after David wrote Psalm 95, here they are, still in the land but not experiencing rest, not really enjoying it, still oppressed in their own land. And now even more so, those, uh, the, the Jewish or Hebrew people who had turned to Christ are now being doubled down on by their Jewish family and, uh, and religious leaders from the religion they've left, as well as by this stage now, the Roman authorities uh, who, are turn, who have given some sort of safe haven to the Jews, uh, but have, are starting to blame the, uh, the Christians uh, for any bad thing that happens. There's another rest uh, referenced in Hebrews chapter 4. This, the Sabbath rest is referenced in verse 9. Uh, uh, in verse 9, uh, God commanded his people to take one day off a week for rest and for worship. It's called the Sabbath. Uh, that rest, like the promised land, was given... Uh, as just a foretaste of another rest that we learn about in the Old Testament. Uh, Verses 4 and 9 together are a little bit massive. Verse 4. He has somewhere spoken of of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is another Old Testament rest, that God is at rest. Now this verse, it's funny how he says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day, as if I can't remember exactly where. Um, it's chapter 2 of the whole Bible. It's right, at, it's right at the start. I'm sure he could put his finger to it if he needed to. Uh, uh, page 2 of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. God finishes creating the world in six days, and on the seventh day, God rests. And usually the connection between uh, God's seventh day rest... Uh, and ours, is that we should take a weekly Sabbath just as God did. At the end of the week, God took a break. At the end of our week, we should take a break. That's the Sabbath, another connection. But the link the author here makes is actually way bigger than that. Because curious, he's not saying uh, that, uh, he's, he's saying that this rest that God took on day seven of creation, God is still at rest And this state of rest that God is now in and enjoying is the rest that you are being invited to. 
to be with God. It's really interesting that in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day on which God rested never gets closed out. The day never ends, apparently. Uh, So if you look at Genesis chapter 1, and if you're a little bit familiar with it, you'll know that there is a rhythm to God's creating work. Day 1, God makes light and dark, and it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Day 2, God makes sky and sea, and it says there was evening and there was morning the second day. Day 3, God makes land and plants, and it says there was evening and there was morning the third day. Day 4... Sun, moon and stars fill the, night, uh, the, the light and day of day one. And God says there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day five, birds and fish fill the sky and sea of day two. And God says there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. I'll say it even though you know what's going to happen. Day six, God creates uh, animals and humans to fill the land that he had made it in the corresponding day three. And it says uh, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then Genesis chapter two, day seven, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And then no talk of that day ever ending. And look, maybe we're reading too much into it. But this seems to be what the author to the Hebrew is is reading into it. That that day, uh, at least in some symbolic fashion, never ended. The author left it deliberately open-ended to say that God is in this eternal state of rest. And the rest of God that he enjoys is a thing is the rest, the ultimate rest, even that Old Testament kind of rest that we've been invited into to join with him. Verse 9, the author makes that link. This is the rest that we've been invited to. There still remains a Sabbath rest, just like the Sabbath rest that God's enjoying after his creative work. Verses 8 and 9 together make it really clear. If Joshua had given them rest, Joshua is the one who came after Moses. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, saying, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden my hearts. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So Joshua led them to the promised land, and that was rest. But not really, not completely. It was a foretaste. There's another day to come. There is a weekly Sabbath rest. A regular reminder of rest, but it's not eternal rest. It's just a reminder. It's a help. uh, It's like a memory aid. It's an opportunity to worship God, but there's another rest to come. God, however, in one way or another, is always at rest. Not lazy, not slacking off, not asleep at the wheel, but always at rest, always at perfect peace since He made the world. Uh, Ever since he made the world and for all eternity before us, God is at rest. And this is the rest to which we're invited. This is the rest to which the promised land and the weekly Sabbath were pointing. And this is kind of uh, the formula of Hebrews. As Hebrews is pulling out, uh, the whole book of Hebrews, as it pulls out again and again themes from the Old Testament, and really the uh, uh, the same formula is happening. He's saying, see this thing? It was a foretaste. Jesus answers it. See this other thing? It was a foretaste. It was great. It's still good, but Jesus answers it, etc., uh, etc. Et 
And so we come back to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, his eternal rest, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Tomorrow morning, you don't go to work, you go to the airport. Remember? There's that all-expenses-paid trip to Magnetic Island. You didn't miss the memo. Are you serious? Everyone's been excited and talking about it for months. You're not going to miss that. You're there early, actually. Your family's with you. Everyone's excited. Bags are packed. You put your bags on the x-ray thingy at the airport. All good. You take your belt off and go through the metal detector thingy. All good. But there's one more thingy, one that you didn't know about. It's an x-ray for you. And on the screen, on the screen as you walk through is displayed, close your eyes for this, your entire naked body. But the shame has only just begun. They adjust the settings on the x-ray thingy and they go deeper. They zoom in on your brain and they're able to collect all kinds of data about every time you've cut a corner at work. And now they also know that you've kept a tab open on your web page for Seek because you're looking for a different job. They move to your heart now and they dial in close and they learn every one of your secrets, how you feel about your bosses, work-related stuff, but other stuff too. The buried things, the shameful private things that no one knows. And you've been completely exposed... And after the scan, they return your bags and say, sorry, you no longer qualify for the trip. You're missing out and you're fired. Unfortunately, that's the state we're in. It's not that we don't know about the rest. It's not that we didn't get the memo. If you're sitting here today, you know probably more than most people you know. Uh, You know the promise that stands before you of eternal life with God. The problem is that we don't qualify. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the promises before us, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Imagine going under that knife. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I gave the illustration of an x-ray thingy, seen deep into your soul. This image is actually far more frightening. It's not even, uh, it's not just an image. Uh, It's not even surgical. It's weaponized. You stand on the threshold of God's promised rest, but you stand before God as he examines you for suitability. It says no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to his eyes and we must give an account. Instead of an x-ray, he merely speaks and his word, it turns out, is sharper than any two-edged sword. As he speaks, slabs of flesh fall off you like you're being cut by a sword. A double-edged sword too, so it's designed for plunging and piercing. 
bit by bit, as God, by his word, gives you his promises. He cuts at your brain and every evidence of your unbelief is laid bare. Bit by bit, as you hear his commands, every moment of disobedience is revealed. First, he lops off your right hand and then your left and then your feet for everything you've ever done wrong and every place you went that you weren't meant to go. He turns to your heart and every failure of your love for him and for your neighbours and your love and every failure to uh, love and support the oppressed all of this is discerned by his sword even every good thing that you did but that you did with bad motives at heart is laid bare and you're pierced no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh, uh, a lot of people love this verse. It's quite a famous verse. Uh, and, and maybe uh, it's been a favourite for yours as well. That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, we often think of that as, uh, or at least my instinct here in that verse growing up was, isn't God's word powerful? It's deadly. It'll kill you. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Who could possibly reach it? Who can stand up to that level of scrutiny? Who's not going to lose their life over this thing? Well, here's one thought. On the screen behind me in these words, uh, we are pictured both as having been pierced, slain, and as being naked and exposed. And it occurs to me that in both of those regards, someone has gone before us. Jesus was hung on display on a cross. And when he'd given up his spirit, having cried out, Father, forgive them, he was pierced. And on the cross, he had been stripped naked. And when Jesus had suffered and hung exposed to scrutiny, even the centurion at the cross said, truly this was the Son of God. He was exposed and pierced and found to be pure. The final verses of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 4 starts with, Let us fear lest we be found wanting. Uh, uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse 1 said that. Verse uh, uh, 11, I think it was, says, um, says, let us strive to enter that rest. Well, you're not going to be able to work hard enough to get there. But here at the end of verse 16, it says, well, let us draw near with confidence because of the one who's gone before. The idea of Jesus being a priest 
Well, we're going to pick that up next week. That's sort of a theme that gets carried on. But from now on, we'll leave it at this. Jesus was tested with the sword and exposed in nakedness. And he was found as he suffered, even at his lowest, to be pure. And to the extent that he is our priest, well, that's to say that he is the one who stands the test on our behalf. He's gone before us. He is tested so that we can be made worthy. So while on the one hand it would be a fearful thing to fail to enter God's promised rest, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace since Jesus has stood up to the test on our behalf. If only we hold fast to him. Let's pray. Father, it is a strange thing that uh, here in church we repeatedly give you thanks for your word which is spoken to us. Because on the one hand, it is, uh, it is uh, an enormous privilege to hear you speak. Uh, on the other hand, it is, uh, it's frightening to be put under your knife uh, and to find uh, that we are wanting Uh, Father, your word kills, uh, but your word is also the word of eternal life. We thank you that just as Jesus died and was raised to life, uh, we get to follow him, uh, that we die to self, uh, that our sins have been punished and crucified, and that we get to live with him and enter your rest. Let us understand, uh, we pray that you'll give us the wisdom uh, to know what it means to fear as well as what it means uh, to, with confidence, draw near. Uh, We pray that uh, you will help us to test, do the hard work of testing ourselves and our own hearts uh, and to confidently uh, bring our sin and our shame to you, uh, knowing that there is grace and forgiveness for all who turn to you and repent. We pray that you will help us uh, to hold fast to Christ. Amen.